0: Good morning. Welcome. Welcome in Jesus' name. It's so good to be with you. If if we haven't met yet, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at York Alliance. uh, thrilled to invite you in as we continue on this journey together. Would you grab your Bibles and open to Second Peter chapter 1, Second Peter chapter 1. So you're going to start in the back of your Bible and start to flip forward if you're not familiar with where that is because it's a long way from the front, so you want to start in the back and kind of work your way forward. Uh, we're just going to be at the beginning of Peter's letter. We're beginning today a four-week series, just a short series that will kind of kick us into the fall. We wrapped up last week what's been a, almost a year-long series on the Exodus, the event of the exodus and the way God has freed his people and forms his people. And now we're going to step into a a series that we're simply calling Vision 2022 because I wasn't uh, in the mood to be creative enough to come up with another title. So this is our vision. This is where we're going. Um, We began the year with this statement that you see on this slide in front of you, uh, which is more of kind of a mission statement. This is kind of a motto for where we're going and what we believe we're called into, all of Jesus for the whole person, for the whole world. So we believe that we are called as uh, followers of Jesus to take all of Jesus for the whole person, not just for forgiveness of sins, but for the restoration of all things within us into the whole world, that we're called out from here, across the street, and across the globe, that we're called to be people who uh, step into God's plan for us. And that's all great, um, but that doesn't give us a lot of tangible, practical, like how do we do that? And that's where... Our vision statement comes in. So I'm going to put a vision statement up in front of you, and I'm going to ask you to read it along with me. So would you read together? We pursue the transformational love of Jesus and seek to build communities that share this love with all people. You'll notice that doesn't roll off your tongue quite as easily as that first one does, right? All of Jesus for the whole person, for the whole world. Uh, It's easy to remember, kind of easy to grab hold of. This one is intentionally a bit more directive that says this is what it looks like for us to live those kinds of lives. So we pursue the transformational love of Jesus and we seek to build communities that share this love with all people. So what we're going to do over the next four weeks is we're going to break that down into four parts. We're going to talk today, what do we mean by saying we pursue? What are we, what are we communicating? What do we mean? And what do we not mean? Uh, what do we mean? We'll look at next week by the transformational love of Jesus. And what does that look like in us as his people And then we'll look at what it means to build communities from a practical perspective. What what kind of tangible communities are we seeking to build and why? What's that look like at the small and the large level? And then finally, what's it mean to share this love with all people? Who are all people uh, specifically for us and how are we called into uh, that pursuit? And so we'll take the next four weeks to just walk through that. So this morning I'm going to start... By asking you to listen to the beginning of uh, the Apostle Peter's second letter. Uh, Both of his letters are written specifically to um, a scattered and persecuted church. So he was written, he was writing at the time of persecution when more persecution was coming. And he's writing to kind of a broad audience of followers of Jesus who are in the midst of that kind of culture. So I want you to keep that in mind. Um, Ethan's going to come and read for us. This is Second Peter chapter one, verses three to eight. and so I want you to listen and uh, seek to absorb uh, all that Peter's saying.
1: Second Peter chapter one, verses three through eight. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and they are increasing, then they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ.
0: Amen. Thank you, Ethan. I'm just going to ask you to sit in that word for a second. And So would you just kind of settle your hearts, maybe close your eyes and think through that uh, message that was just read to us. Lord Jesus, in the silence, we wait for you. For some of us, it may be the first time today, or the first time this week even, that we've experienced silence, that we can quiet our heart. And so, Jesus, would you just help us to be present, fully present to your spirit and your word for us? Would you help us to have open hearts and minds and lives? Would you guard and guide my words, that they would come from you alone, that the words that come from my flesh and my strength and my intellect would fall to the ground and be forgotten. But the words that come from your spirit and the words that are intended for us, they would penetrate our hearts. God, we desire to be changed by you, to be shaped by you, and so would you uh, correct in us all that needs to be corrected? Would you train in us the life of Christ that you've invited us into. And would you, by your Spirit, lead us forward? So God, um, we submit ourselves to you, I submit myself to you, and take all that we have for your glory and for your purposes. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to ask you a question that is going to require participation, so I uh, want you to either actively raise your hand or actively choose not to raise your hand based on the question that I'm asking. So that's um, I'm giving you a warning because some of you are assuming that I'm going to talk now and you're just going to sit there, so I want to give you the warning that I am intending for you to engage. So here's the question. Uh, How many of you would say, as you look back at the last seven days, so last Sunday to this Sunday, as you look back, you would say you have overwhelmingly experienced the abundant life that Jesus promised in the last seven days. You put your hand up if you'd say, I've I've experienced that. All right, so for those of you who are only listening online, that was maybe, I counted quick, but maybe that was like seven or eight out of the total. So that's not a great percentage, but that's okay. For those of you who did experience it, beautiful. Uh, That is the invitation that we have. Um, What I hope that we're gonna do over the next 40 minutes or so is for uh, those of you who put your hand up, to uh, hopefully connect the dots as to why, and for the vast majority of us who couldn't put our hands up, um, hopefully uh, create a pathway that says that kind of life is indeed possible. Uh, the, The good life... Uh, what the good life is and what it means to step into the good life is really the core of uh, all of the questions that get asked and all of the uh, searching that happens in the world around us. We, we want the good life. Uh, you may not phrase it that way, but um, you may remember before I was called into ministry, I had a marketing background. Uh, all marketing people are tasked with creating a desire in you for the good life. So um, whether it is a product that you need to have or whether it's a position that you need to occupy, whether it's the way that we define things like uh, freedom or the way that we define uh, independence, those are uh, the key words that create, they tie back to the good life, or whether it's as simple as knowing deep in your heart that you need the iPhone 14. Like you, you know that, um, that there's a difference between the 13 and the 14. Nobody yet has been able to explain what the difference is, but there's a difference and you know that like, I need the 14. That, that thing that's in you, that's the desire for the good life. And, and, and what I want to uh, say explicitly up front, I, I want to be very straightforward with you, Jesus has a plan for the good life. He, he has laid that out for you and that plan, the plan of Jesus, competes with the messaging of the world around us. And and I want you to know that up front, because most of us would say, I know that Jesus has a plan for the good life, but I think that Jesus' plan is very narrow and focused on my spirituality, and in order to truly have the good life, I need to have Jesus plus some other stuff. So uh, whether it be Jesus plus a, a, a... thriving bank account, or Jesus plus a really great family situation, or Jesus plus a certain relationship, or Jesus plus the iPhone 14. Whatever the thing is, uh, the desire is Jesus plus something else. And and I want you to remember as we walk through this that Peter was writing to a scattered and persecuted church who were actively being persecuted for their faith, and he was describing for them what the good life is, is going to look like. I'm going to unpack that in just a minute, but I want to begin with a provocative quote from uh, Dallas Willard in his book, The Great Omission. So uh, look at this quote, and uh, remember, Willard is a philosopher, so he uses words intentionally. Listen to what he says. The greatest issue facing the world today, with all its heartbreaking needs, is whether those who, by profession or culture, are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. Willard also uses a lot of words, so I'm going to uh, summarize a little bit of that by pulling some of the extra phrasing out. What, what he said is, first of all, the greatest issue Facing the world today. So he he doesn't say uh, among the greatest issues or one of the greatest issues or a significant issue. Uh, He's using words intentionally. The greatest issue facing not the church today, but the world today is whether those who are identified as Christians will become disciples of Jesus Christ. Just get that phrase. The issue is whether those who identify as Christians will become disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, you may or may not agree with what Willard's saying, but what's fascinating to me as I speak to a group like this is that in 21st century North America, we all at least understand what he's saying. That that there are large numbers of people who identify as Christians, who are not disciples of Jesus Christ. That is a phenomenon that would be unheard of within the New Testament. Within the early church, for the first three centuries of the church, there was, there, there was no way to even understand what Willard's saying. Because there was, there was no separation between Christian and disciple of Jesus Christ. They, they were unified together. But now, 1,700 years later, Willard is saying the greatest issue, the single greatest issue, is that those people who check Christian on the survey would actually be followers of Jesus. What's that mean for us? What's that mean for the good life? And what does it mean that we have a gospel, I'm going to put that in quotes for the moment, a gospel that allows people to consider themselves Christians, who are not followers of Jesus Christ. What does that mean about the gospel that we're preaching? I want to take what Peter wrote, what you heard Ethan read, and I want to look first at who Peter was and his sense of the gospel. So we're going to start with Peter and the gospel, and then I'm going to uh, I, I want us to balance together the distinction between pursue and pursued. We are pursued by Jesus, and we pursue Jesus. What does that look like? How does that balance work? And then finally, the power of we. Why is it that we pursue rather than I or all of us together pursue? So Peter in the gospel, balancing pursue and pursued, and the power of we. So if you're in Second Peter chapter 1, I want you to uh, look at for, first this uh, statement that Peter makes. So he says in verse 3, "...his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness... Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That's quite a sentence to start with, right? Um, what, what Peter's saying to us is there's a, a way of understanding the gospel, the good news that we need to get our, our heads around. So I'll just start with a simple question What's the gospel? Like, if you were going to speak the gospel, um, that word just literally means good news. When Jesus used the word gospel, he meant good news. He sometimes, it's actually translated interchangeably. H- how would you define the gospel? I, it would be fascinating to hand around a microphone, but it would uh, take way too much time, and I would have to probably challenge a lot of your definitions, and that's probably not going to be helpful. So um, I'm going I'm to walk you through that a little bit. Um, for most of us, we would state the gospel in simple terms, something like this. The, the phrasing that I often use is this, um, that Jesus came, lived the life that I couldn't live, died the death that I deserved to die in order to bring me to Christ, in order to bring me to God. And so if we make that broad, communal, Jesus came to le- live the life that we couldn't live, to die the death that we all deserve so that we would be able to come to God. And, and uh, that, that's true. So, so I want you to hear that's true. It's simply not sufficient. Um, maybe even a simpler way to do it, you've probably heard this if you've been around evangelicalism for any period of time, um, that there's a distinction between religion and Christianity And that distinction is do versus done. How many of you have heard that before? Do versus done. Have you heard that? A few of you? Yeah, man, I'm glad we're not overly Christian cultured here. That's probably good. Um, So... um, The distinction is this, that in in religion, there's this invitation into doing stuff to be uh, kind of approved in the presence of God. But Christianity is all about the fact that Jesus has done all of that work on our behalf, and so we simply receive that. And again, I'm not refuting the truth of that. I'm simply saying that that's probably not sufficient for at least two reasons. The first one is, um, it shouldn't surprise us if our entire gospel is Jesus has done all the work and we just receive it, that we have a church full of consumers, right? Because the entire gospel itself is saying, just receive everything. You don't have to do anything, just sit back. Uh, Jesus has done it all for you. Just sit back and receive. Um, and that may be a problem or may not be a problem, but where it becomes a major problem is that's not ever the way that Jesus talked. Jesus defined the gospel, never defined it that way. Uh, the simplest way that Jesus defined the gospel was in the beginning of uh, Mark, so in Mark chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 15, as Jesus came out of the temptation of the wilderness, the statement that he made was this, the, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. So what he said is there, there's a kingdom that you're now able to enter into, a way of living, a, a, a way of engaging the truth of who God is that our lives can now enter into, and it requires our action, repent, turn, and believe, engage the, the truth, the, the good news of that gospel. And it's it's fascinating because when Jesus talked to people around him, when when he invited them, he didn't give them the opportunity to just have mental ascent, right? He didn't come to uh, to people who were his disciples or were to be his disciples and say, "Um, I, I want you to put your trust in me. Or I want you to pray a prayer to signify that you believe in me. What did Jesus say? Always the same thing. Follow me. Follow me. Come and bring your life under my life, and model your life after my life. That's what Peter, the author of the letter that we're reading, that's what he heard from Jesus. Come, follow me. John chapter 6, you don't need to turn there, is a fascinating back and forth. We don't have time to look at all the details of it, but um, Jesus is surrounded by big crowds. Uh, Some estimate thousands of people who have uh, come to be around Jesus, and he's teaching them, and he teaches them in such a way that he's uh, trying to uh, kind of create some tension, Um, and you know he's trying to create some tension, because the way he phrases the end of his teaching sounded like this, if anybody wants to be my disciple, they need to eat my flesh and drink my blood, and everybody was like, ew, right, like, um, and and people just started to like peel off, like people just leaving in droves, dozens over here, a hundred over here, like everybody, everybody's kind of disappearing, because gross, right, And he's left with the core disciples, the 12 disciples and maybe a few stragglers, and he says to them, are you guys leaving too? And Peter's response, the same Peter who wrote this letter, Peter's response you probably know is, Lord, where else would we go? You alone have the words of life. Now that's fascinating for two reasons. One is he didn't say, oh no, Jesus, we'd never leave. What he basically said is, we'd like to, but there's no better options. <laughs> like, I, we, this is, it's kind of freaky, eat the flesh, drink the blood, it's not our thing, but we just feel like our options are over, so what are we going to do? Uh, but then he said, you alone have the words of life. Now in Greek, there are a number of words that he could have used for life. The primary word is the word bios, which uh, means like health and vitality, physicality, long life. It would have been like the typical word for life. So like if, uh, if later today you're going to say that you don't have a whole lot of time to do a lot of stuff because you're really, really busy and then you're going to spend like eight hours watching guys in tights run around on a field, um, that's because of BIOS, right? There's, a, there's BIOS. Some of you did that yesterday because you wanted to see. I know, they, they won. It's great. I'm so excited for you. Yeah, so, so that, that's, that's BIOS life. That's, that, that's BIOS. That's not what he said, What he said was, you alone have the words of Zoe. Zoe is a different kind of life. It's it's what we started by talking about, the good life, the abundant life. It's a, a qualitative life that is kind of the overflow of the goodness of God into life. Peter, the author of the letter that we read, says to Jesus, you alone have the words of life. Now, why is that significant? Well, if you go back to Second Peter chapter 3, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life. And guess what word it is? Zoe. He says, God, through your power, you have given to us all that we need for the abundant life. Life and godliness. You've given it already to us. And as we step into it, we become partakers of the divine nature. So there's a, those are a couple key phrases that we, I, I want you to see in the, those couple verses. But here's, here's three things that that immediately says to us. The first one is that we need to be partakers of the divine nature because the divine power has granted to us what we need. We need something outside of us to give us what we need. So made a little simpler, the divine nature is not in you, it's outside of you. You, you can't spend your, your meditative moments seeking to engage the divine within you because it's not there. The divine is outside of you. So maybe the summary statement is, despite what you might think, you're not awesome, okay? Okay. So, um, so, and some of us, some of us need to be reminded of that because you kind of start to think that you're awesome, and you're not awesome. That's what that's what he's saying to you. Like you're, you're the divine nature is outside of you. All the goodness that you have, all of the stuff that overflows out of you, all of the awesomeness that's in you. It's awesome because Jesus is awesome, not because you're awesome. Okay, so keep that in mind. First thing, you're not awesome. But the second thing it says is that um, you have that from the very beginning. So everything that you need for life and godliness is yours at the very beginning, which means it's not the future version of you or the, the person that you'd like to be that God is blessing with his goodness. It's the person that you are in the midst of your brokenness. So, so we might summarize that as saying um, it, it's not only that you're not awesome. Um, you don't need to be awesome either. Okay. So, so in the midst of our brokenness, wherever we are, it's not that we should stay there. But our our move forward towards Jesus is not what gains us what we need for life and godliness. We're already given what we need for life and godliness. From the very beginning, in the midst of our brokenness, as uh, as we bow the knee to Jesus and we seek to follow after him, everything that we need for life and godliness is given to us immediately. So first thing, you're not awesome. Second thing, you don't need to be awesome because God is awesome. Third thing, the gospel is not simply atonement for sin. Now, it is atonement for sin, don't get me wrong, but that's not the emphasis that Peter is going to make, and it's not the primary emphasis that the majority of the New Testament is going to make. Our, our sin is indeed atoned for, but the message that Peter is speaking is that the gospel is giving you something that allows you to enter into the fullness of life now. When when Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand, he didn't mean the kingdom of God is way over there, and when you die, you'll get there. He meant the kingdom of God is here among us. And all of his teaching pointed to the, the very present reality of the kingdom of God. And so when Peter, who listened to all of that teaching, says to a scattered and persecuted church that that all that you need for life and godliness has already been given to you by the divine nature that's already been, uh, uh, it's already been given to you and you're now partakers of that divine nature. What he's saying is that when we enter into the life of Christ, we enter into the life of Christ in the here and now in a way that the gospel, the good news, is about the fullness of life Now. So that more and more of us, more weeks out than not, would be able to say, yes, in an overwhelming way, I experienced the fullness of life last week. Like I, I, I lived the good life. I am in the process of living the good life. Now remember, before we go any further, Peter's writing to a scattered and persecuted church. He's writing to people who are going to be imprisoned for what they believe, people who are being persecuted for what they believe. And so the definition of what's good needs to be defined in that context. It doesn't mean the, the um, um, prosperous life. It doesn't mean the comfortable life. But Peter does mean that you and I can enter into the good life, res- regardless of our circumstances. The question is, how? Well, he's going to say it really clearly. So if you uh, look at verse 5, he says this. For this very reason... Make every effort, say it again, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, your virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self control, self control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. I don't mean to run over those fast because they're not significant. They could each be their own sermon. What I want you to see is that Peter is saying the, the pathway in to. Uh, it, it, to the life that you've been invited into that's already been granted to you because you've been given all that you need for life and godliness, the pathway in is our effort. We have to pursue. Now, some of you are immediately thinking, oh, but I know some scriptures that are going to like really push on that. So rather than you emailing me this week, let me respond to the the email that you were about to send to me. So uh, some of you who came from certain backgrounds, you're immediately reciting in your head Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, if you don't know what it says, says that by grace you've been saved through faith, and this faith is a gift of God so that no one can boast. So what what Paul says in Ephesians 2 is that everything we have is grace, and even the faith to enter into that grace is given as a gift so that you have nothing to do with it. So you have been pursued by God. And Peter said, the way into the fullness of life is to make every effort. So are they fighting with each other? Or what's going on here? What's happening? And so here's what I want you to get. There's a balance here that grace is given to us as a gift because we are pursued. So the God of the universe is pursuing us. If you're a follower of Jesus, he has pursued you. You didn't make that decision on your own. Uh, You made that decision at best in conjunction with the overwhelming grace of Jesus inviting you in. And as that grace begins to take root in your life, you and I are called to now pursue him based on the grace that we've been given. Our growth is our pursuit combined with his spirit. So the next email you're gonna send me is uh, Galatians chapter three. And so in Galatians chapter three, it says that if you were saved by grace, don't you think you should also be sanctified through grace? And that's absolutely true. Uh, What's happening is that as we pursue, Jesus continues to pursue us and the Holy Spirit does purifying work in us as we position ourselves along with him. And I admit to you, that is a mystery. Both of those things have to be held together. Here's what I want you to see. Peter said, we need to step into this. Uh, Dallas Willard, again, in the great omission, uh, said it this way. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace, you know, does not just have to do with the forgiveness of sins alone. What Willard's saying is that grace doesn't get in the way of us trying. Grace gets in the way of us trying in a way that would qualify us for something that only God can give to us. So our, our effort is action, and we're called to action. Earning is attitude that says, if I do this, God will love me more. And that's, that's not true. You are already... At the very beginning, if you've, been a, if you've been a follower of Jesus for a minute, you have already been given all that you need for life and godliness. It's already yours. Not because you qualified for it, but because the grace of God has been given to you. But grace is not opposed to your effort. Having been given that gift, now we need to step into that gift. One more Willard quote that I'm done for today, I promise. Uh, this is from Renovation of the Heart. He says this, People who do not intend to be inwardly transformed will not be. God is not going to pick us up by the seat of our pants as it were and throw us into transformed kingdom living. The problem of spiritual transformation is that it is not intended. People do not see it and its value and decide to carry through with it. They do not decide to do the things that Jesus did and said. So there's action required. What Willard's is saying is that the movement towards Christ likeness is uh, must be intended. So uh, if I stood up in front of you and I said, uh, I am starting today intending never to sin again, you'd probably look at me and like, are you planning to die this afternoon or what's your plan, <laughs> right? Like, but, I, but, but if I said, like, I, I'm intending never to sin again the rest of my life, you would look at me kind of funny. But if I said to you, I am intending to continue to sin over and over again for the rest of my life, you'd say, even funnier, like, I'm... Um, I thought you were the pastor. Like, I thought there was like, there should be something else going on, right? But we need to understand there is no other alternative. You either intend not to sin or you intend to sin. Or, said another way, you intend to be formed into the image of Christ or you do not intend to be formed into the image of Christ. Either way, you are being formed spiritually. You're either being formed with your intentionality or with your unintentionality by the world around you. So the way that we talk about it are through two different models of spiritual formation. One is unintentional and the other one's intentional. So the first model that's on the screen, uh, you've probably seen this before if you've been around for a while. This is unintentional spiritual formation. And what what I want you to hear is that this is happening to you whether you want it to or not. So there's no option of I'm not being formed spiritually. You are being formed spiritually. As we walk through this, you'll see how that works. So unintentional spiritual formation. I'm not intending, I'm not making every effort, I'm not intending to be formed by Jesus. Instead, there, there's a world around me that's telling me stories. So, uh, and when we say stories, we believe. What we're talking about are messages that either implicitly or explicitly are being given through the culture. Things like the American dream and the good life. The, the way that we achieve success or prosperity, the way that our, uh, what a good family looks like and what a, a good responsible person looks like. The the messages that we hear that can be really, really broad like that, uh, all the way down to the stories that we hear about like certain relationships or certain ways of being. Uh, things like, are people inherently good or are people inherently bad? Those are all stories that we hear. And the culture uh, in a broad, kind of faceless way, has an opinion on all of those things. And as we kind of just live in the culture, we start to absorb some of those stories. And then we have relationships with other people who come from other perspectives than ours. And the way that we kind of hone and understand those stories happens through relationship. So you have friendships and connections with other people, and you begin to kind of talk about stuff, talk about life. And what happens as you talk about life is you're starting to hone those stories that you believe, whether through, um, uh, th- whether through media or whether through uh, the messages of the culture or whether through just your, the way your parents raised you or wh- whatever the stuff is, you, you start to hone and, and clarify those messages. And then on top of those things, you have habits that, that form you. They start to be shaping to you. And so sociologists talk about both thick and thin habits. So thin habits are things that are um, they're, they're relatively minor, but they become part of your routine. So things like brushing your teeth is a thin habit. It doesn't make a, a significant impact on your formation. It does make a significant impact on the people around you, so you should definitely do it. But it's a thin habit from that perspective. Um, there are also thick habits, th- habits that uh, make a much greater impact. So things like... Um, eating a meal together as a family every day, or, um, uh, or watching three hours of Netflix before you pass out in bed, or um, scrolling through Instagram first thing in the morning for the first hour of your day or whatever. Those are thick habits that create significant things in us. Uh, whether little or big, every habit is formational in some way. It's forming us. And so, when you take the stories and the relationships and the habits all together, and you mix that into whatever environment you live in. So, for the vast majority of us, that's two environments at the same time. That's uh, the Greater York area, wherever you live, and the internet world that you live in, that is also uh, global at the same time. And we live in both of those things. So. Certain aspects of our local environment shape you. We, we had a meeting with young leaders yesterday, and we were talking about the fact that um, in York County, it, it's difficult to step into leadership, to, uh, to pursue leadership, because the general cultural feel is don't stick out. Like, that's just kind of generally the way, it, and it's not, it's not bad, it's not malicious, it's just like, that's the way it is here. That's not the way it is everywhere. There's lots of places in the world that are not like that. But here, in this culture, it's like that. So those are some of the cultural things that can happen. But there's also uh, the internet culture. So uh, I'm not suggesting you try this experiment, but if you spend an hour on Twitter, just scrolling through Twitter, what you're going to find when you get off of Twitter is almost imperceptible, but I promise you it will be there. You will be a little bit edgier. You'll be a little bit more judgmental. You'll be a little bit more quick to assume that people are out to get you. And you'll have this kind of general sense of unease. And it will happen every single time you get on Twitter. And I'm not suggesting that you drop Twitter. I'm certainly not suggesting you spend an hour on Twitter. I'm just suggesting you be aware of the fact that all of those things, those environments, shape us. And that happens over time through experiences. That happens whether you intend for it to happen or not. Whether you want it to happen or not, it's happening to you. What Peter says is, make every effort to be formed into the image of Christ. So if you replace that with intentional spiritual formation, it looks like this next diagram. So we've replaced stories that we believe with teaching, good, clear teaching from the scriptures that ground us in what's true. Now you may say, for some of you, like the jump of the Bible is what's true, is a big jump for you. That's why we're going to spend like eight weeks this fall digging into what are the scriptures, where do they come from, why is it significant, why is it a solid foundation? Because if teaching is going to be a significant aspect of the way that we grow, we need to be confident in our teaching. So we're going to spend some time into that. But teaching, grounded in the scriptures, a community of people who are Also, following after Jesus and are helping us hone the message of the scriptures to apply them to our lives and our situations so we understand what the scriptures mean. And then practice instead of habits, so uh, specific practices that place us in the presence of Jesus. So, those practices could be anything from regular Bible reading to prayer to uh, celebration to Sabbath, all of the different ways that we talk about practice all of them form together to put us back into the presence of Jesus to be about that process of making every effort. And all of those things, post Acts 2 and Pentecost, are caught on fire by the power of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit becomes the environment in which change happens. And and, and there's a a combination of both. That's the pursue and pursued part of it, where we're making effort to position ourselves. We're making every effort And the Holy Spirit is meeting us in those efforts to change us and to transform us. We'll talk more about that that next week. So those two areas, um, uh, uh, the areas of intentional spiritual formation and unintentional spiritual formation, are literally the only two options, which is why I would need to stand in front of you and say, I don't intend to sin anymore. The fact that I probably won't make it through the rest of the day doesn't negate the intention. Does that make sense? So you're still going to intend not to sin. And tomorrow I'm going to intend not to sin again. Because the only alternative is to intend to sin. And so rather than pursue uh, being formed by the culture, I'm going to pursue being formed by Christ. Now here's where the magic comes in. The power of we. We don't say in our vision statement, I pursue the transformational love of Jesus we don't say we'll be a group of people who will individually pursue the, the transforming love of Jesus. What we say is we pursue the transformational love of Jesus. Wh- why do we do that? Because for me, I'm just going to be honest with you, my natural default with both uh, with really all three of the aspects that, I, uh, that are part of that intentional spiritual formation model, teaching and community and practice, is to isolate them from one another. So I engage teaching, and I'm done engaging teaching, and then I engage practice, and I'm done engaging that practice, and then I engage community. But here's the problem. Teaching and practice are both very individual for me, and then I engage community that may or may not have any bleed over into teaching and practice. That's not the way that it's intended. Our spiritual formation is intended to be immersed in community, so that our teaching is being honed, and our practice is being discussed, and we're engaging it all with people who we're committed to. Why is that magical? We'll see, here's, here's the beauty of it. You commit to community for a couple weeks in a row, a couple months in a row, and this beautiful thing is going to emerge. It's called annoying people. They're going to emerge, um, and, and um, it's going to be really frustrating, and, and people are going to grade on you, and you're going to be committed to people, and you're going to immediately think, I committed to the wrong people because these people are awful. Like, I should not be dealing with these people. And uh, by the way, they're going to be thinking the same thing about you, so let's just be honest, right? Like, it's, it's, it's all across the board. And, and see, what happens is, as we commit to one another, uh, we, we make that difficult step of committing, and, and the frustration of the friction between our sinful natures starts to shape us, starts to be a part of the way that we get polished and the way that we get shaped. Now, here's the bad news. Bad news only because right now it's Sunday morning. Th- this is not community. This is something. It's a, great a- it's a great avenue for teaching and for modeling some practice, actually. So there's some practice stuff that can be a good part of this. Uh, this itself, actually, the Gathering of the Saints is a practice. So that, that's, that's all good. But it's not community. Community is an intentional step into a group of people who you're committing your life to, and they're committing their lives to you. People who will know if you're not there. People who will know if you're starting to disconnect. And that intentional connection, that intentional commitment, will be incredibly frustrating, but it is the crucible in which change starts to happen. As we commit to one another, whether it's uh, a very formalized way through a community group or discipleship partners or both, or whether it's an informal way of, of connecting uh, with some people at your stage of life and you're, you're connecting on a regular basis. But with intentionality, we're committed to one another and we're pursuing one another. That's, that's why for us, community groups are the best way to do that, because it intentionalizes the process of saying, we're, these are the people you're committed to. These are the people you're walking with. These are the people who are going to annoy you, right? Like you know up front." Um, and by the way, if you're saying, my community group's wonderful, nobody there annoys me, you're the annoying one. So, <laughs> sorry, As somebody had to tell you it was my job for today to let you know that, so sorry. Uh, but that, that's what happens, that's just human nature. As we commit over a period of time, shaping starts to happen. There's a great book on community written by a guy named Joseph Hellerman. Uh, it's called When the Church Was a Family. If you could read one book on community, this would be the one book I would say to read on community. This is a long quote. I've used it before, but I, I want you to see it because I think it's super helpful as we engage this. Uh, Hellerman says this, people who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. When we commit to one another, when it's uncomfortable, frustrating and it would be much easier to leave that's when we grow I can tell you personally there are four or five guys that are, are at a level of spiritual maturity that I can only dream of getting to and every single one of them without exception has had to stay in a local body through difficulty have had to work through conflict and had to really wrestle in order to have Christ formed up in them some of you are those kind of people the power of we is that God does something in a community that is not done individually. So if you are individually making every effort, that's great, but it's not sufficient. It, it doesn't come across in Second Peter 1 because of the English language, but every time Peter is using the term you or your, he is using it in second person plural. The problem that we have is second person singular and second person plural are the same word in, uh, in English. But he's always saying, all of you. In fact, you see it, if you go down to verse 10, he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. He's, he's speaking into that plural sense, but he switched to brothers. That's actually the generic brothers and sisters. Uh, Therefore, all of you. Uh, go through this process. And he's referencing back to the yous that he's used throughout that time, the, uh, the you plurals, the y'alls, everybody, right? And so what he's saying is, we all together step into this. We pursue, all of us pursue, the transformational love of Jesus and seek to build communities that share this love with all people. So what, what do I want you to hear today? The key is this, wherever you're at, we need to start somewhere, stepping into, with effort, pursuing the love of Jesus. And that could be a very small step forward. That could be a step into community. That could be a step into practice. That could be a step into faithfulness. That could be for you for the first time saying, okay, I'm going I'm to intend to follow Jesus. I, I've only maybe prayed a prayer at one point in time, but I've never actually made a decision. I didn't know I had to do anything. This is the, the invitation in. Disciplines are really, really simple. Disciplines are things that you're able to do in your own strength that, over time, will lead you to something that you are not currently able to do in your own strength. So like right now, I am not capable of running a marathon. Like, if I were to change clothes and stretch a lot and carve up and then go out and try to run right now, I could give it everything that I had. I'd be solid for three to four miles. And then somewhere between mile four and mile five, I would literally die on the side of the road. Like, that would be it. I would just be, I would push myself to the end. I would just die. That'd be it. Like, you don't even take me to the hospital. It's not worth it. I'm done. Right? So, so but, but see, here's the thing. I can run for a mile and walk for a mile and run for another half a mile, probably, and then walk for another half a mile. And I could do that today. Like right now, I could do that. And tomorrow, I could do that again. And if I do that enough times, I'll start to be able to run that whole time instead of run and walk. And then the mileage will start to move up over a period of time. And what happens is through discipline, I do what I'm capable of doing right now in my own strength. And over time, I'm able to do what I'm not capable right now of doing in my own strength. So I would say it this way. I I can't run a marathon right now, but I'm the kind of person for whom running a marathon is possible. If I told you right now, act like Jesus, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it the four miles I'd make it running. You're going to just collapse. You can't. I can't. But you can step into basic practices, into community, to sit under the teaching of the scriptures And through things that you are able to do in your own effort, become the kind of people for whom living like Jesus is possible. For instance, Jesus says, love your enemies. So I want you to go out this week and love your enemies. Right? Like, that's not doable. Like, it's just, it doesn't work. But over time, immersing myself in the scriptures and engaging in community, the annoying kind, and uh, doing the practices Over time, I become the kind of person for whom loving my enemy is actually easier than hating my enemy. I become the kind of person for whom living a holy life is actually more comfortable for me than living an unholy life. It doesn't mean I'm perfect. It just means that over time, the things that I can do start to train me into the things that I can't currently do in my own strength. So the invitation is that we would together pursue and so i want to invite you into that um i i i want you to hear that at york alliance you are invited and will continue to be invited week after week after week into a whole life pursuit of discipleship to jesus this is not going to be a place where it will be easy to be a christian who's not a, a disciple of jesus We're going to try to make that as hard for you as possible, because it's only recently that that's even a reality, it's even a thing, and so we want to be, because we believe the Bible calls us to, people who, if we call ourselves Christians, it's because we are being discipled to Jesus, and that's what you're going to hear again and again and again, so as we respond today, I'm going to ask you to just kind of uh, take a minute, there's a lot that was said, that's like, you know, eight messages all wrapped up into one. And so that means that God's going to speak to you in some uh, specific and personal ways. And So if you just set your stuff to the side, close your eyes, take a deep breath. The worship team's going to come. They're going to lead us in a minute. But I just want you to breathe and then ask the Holy Spirit to come and speak what he wants you to hear. What's the, what's the next step? What are, what's the next thing for you? So Holy Spirit, would you just come help us to hear from you?